Well, good morning, good morning. Whether you're here in person or you're online, I'm always just so blessed and grateful to be able to worship with you and to hear from God together. So with that sung prayer fresh in our hearts and minds, let's hear God's word that we'll be digging into today. This is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, Paul writes, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So last week, David preached on verses 15 to the beginning of, through the beginning of 18. This week, I'll pick up on the second half of verse 18, and we'll make our way through verse 21, and then I'll finish up the last two verses of chapter one next Sunday. So if you happen to miss last week's sermon or any from this series so far, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to go back and catch up. It is so critically important that we get ourselves rooted in this fundamental, foundational doctrine that Paul walks through in this letter to the church. Perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, the book of Ephesians emphasizes the connection between sound doctrine and right practice or behavior in the Christian life. I'm afraid it's far too easy and common, actually, to, you know, for us to assume that to study and understand theology is just for people who teach seminary or write commentaries. And therefore, it's just too tempting to kind of leave that theology to the professionals so that we can just focus on what's practical, right? We just want to be told what we're supposed to do as Christians. But in Ephesians, Paul argues and demonstrates that theology is thoroughly practical. In order to live out God's will for us in our lives practically, we must understand who we are in Christ doctrinally or theologically. So go back and catch up if you've missed any of those sermons in the series so far. You can find them, uh, find links to them on our website at fourmile.org. But by way of summary, I just want to give a little bit of exhortation or encouragement to us from the text from last week. So let's look at it again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So first we see affirmed here once again that belief, right doctrine, and behavior, right practice, they go together. 
Paul could not stop thanking God for their faith in Christ and the love that poured out of them for one another because of that faith. Genuine faith will lead. It must lead to genuine, deep love for one another. Love that forgives, love that serves, love that prays, love that encourages, love that that seeks to be at peace with one another. When that kind of love comes out of us, we can know that God has been at work in us. And we do not, we cannot stop giving thanks for that. Second, I just can't help but be encouraged that Paul shared with them exactly what he was praying for. That God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they might grow in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened or the eyes of their hearts opened as we just prayed. Have you ever had someone do that? I have someone in my life who does that for me often. She doesn't just tell me that she's praying for me. That's encouraging in and of itself. But she tells me specifically what she's praying for, and that means all that much more. I especially love it when she tells me the specific verse or verses that she's praying over and into my life. It is so powerful. We see here in this text, and we'll see it again in chapter three, that we have solid biblical ground for encouraging people, not just by telling them that we're praying for them, but by telling them exactly how we're praying for them. I would love for all of us to take some time this week to consider how we can do just that, how we can encourage one another, those around us, by not just praying for one another, but by telling you, telling each other exactly what we're praying for. But I have two cautions here. So first, we've got to understand that while it is true that we are to pray fervently and faithfully for one another, make no mistake. It is never our prayers that are powerful, transformative. No, it is God and God alone to whom we are praying who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. He alone gets every ounce of glory for every prayer aligned with and answered according to his will. And my second caution is this. If you tell someone you're praying for them, you'd better be praying for them, right? It's so easy, right, to just spout off, hey, I'll be praying for you, and then, oh, we never get around to doing that. We wanna be, we have to be, we must be a praying church. It's one of our pillars. Um, And I'm going off script here, Richard, sorry. He asked me this morning, any changes? No, but I do have a change here because something came to me. Church, wouldn't it be amazing if from this day forward, every time we left service, we found two or three people and said, hey, I wanna pray for you. I wanna, let's pray about what we just heard. Let's pray these verses into our lives. Like, I I would love for y'all, we will keep these doors open all day long. Stay here, pray for each other, encourage one another in this word that we're learning and do it throughout the week as well. Okay, off script. We're now resuming our regularly scheduling programming. Okay, so thank you. Thank you. Sorry, Richard. Okay. Um, anyway, but you know, we just have, such, Paul gives us such incredible examples, like these frameworks for how some people say, I don't know how to pray, and that's fair. Pray this. Go to God's word. Pray what Paul's praying. Pray it for one another, right? Kingdom prayers, asking, seeking, knocking for the Holy Spirit to do in our lives what only he can do, right? And it's all to the praise of God's glorious grace. 
Which brings me to the third encouragement. There is never a moment in our Christian lives when we don't need the enlightening revelation of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Never should you ever feel an ounce of condemnation or discouragement that you can't figure this all out on your own or or it, it doesn't make sense yet, right? You're not meant to. You absolutely cannot figure it out on your own. Now, it's true that we are responsible to make every effort in the, in the life of faith. Those are the very words that the gospel writers often use. We must, as Paul encourages us in another letter, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it's an ongoing working out, if you will. And that's another way of talking about our day by every day sanctification. I mean, I couldn't help but think of working out physically, right? Wouldn't it be amazing, just grand, if we could just do it once and poof, done, complete, couldn't be stronger, fit for the rest of your life. But unfortunately, that is not at all the way that works, is it? It's an ongoing, consistent, intentional effort toward physical health and strength. And so it is spiritually. The constant endeavor of our lives should be that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. But us working that out only happens through the power of the Spirit at work in us. And it happens day by day. And that's what Paul is praying for, really. That the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be continually at work in us so that we might grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God. So as we continue on in verse 18 and 19, Paul takes it a step further and explains in even greater detail that he's praying for three specific things. First, that they might know what is the hope to which God has called them. Second, that they might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And last, that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So Paul is praying for their minds, that they might grow in their knowledge, that the church would be a community of good thinkers, thinking based on the wisdom and revelation that comes through the Holy Spirit and is rooted in God's word. As we think long and hard about these things, we gain greater and greater knowledge of God and all that we are and all that we have in Him. But it isn't just about gaining more head knowledge. And we know that because remember, Paul prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened as well. Growing in the knowledge of God isn't just knowing a lot of information about God but it's intimately, personally knowing God, experiencing his power and his presence in your life, being connected in relationship with him, understanding his purposes and desires for his people. That's the kind of knowing that Paul is talking about here. Paul prays that we would know in our minds and that we would know in our hearts. So first, Paul specifically prays that the Spirit would so work in us that we would be grounded in the knowledge of the hope to which God has called us. So we need to understand what biblical hope is, and we need to understand this word called hope. 
I recently read, and I quote, we have all been hardwired for hope. We all project our lives into the future to imagine things as we would like them to be. We all carry around with us personal hopes and dreams. We all surrender our hearts to some kind of expectation. We all silently wish that things could be different than they are. We all hope in something and we all hope for something. So much of how we look at life and how we live our lives is connected to the things in which we place the fundamental hopes of our lives. I was struck by that for the obvious reason, it's about hope, but also because it links belief, how we look at our lives, and behavior, how we live our lives, and it demonstrates once again that both are rooted fundamentally in our hopes. And we talk about the fundamentals around here a lot. Clearly, we learn here in Ephesians that where we place our hope and what we hope for fundamentally matters in the way we live our lives. As that quote I just read alluded to, we throw that word hope around a lot, don't we? I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I get accepted to that school. I hope our marriage will survive. I hope my prodigal child comes home. I hope the prognosis is good. Or if you like me, I hope dinner's ready when I get home. I don't know about you, but all of my hopes and dreams, if you will, that pertain to this world, whether it's job-related or marriage or health or finances, whatever they may be, not one of them, not one single one of them has come to fruition in all the ways I've hoped for. There's always some sort of, an element of disappointment, right? There's, it's an almost but not quite, or maybe a not even on my radar screen, something that I've hoped for, right? But the thing is, none of those worldly hopes are grounded in absolute assurance. And that's the difference between the wishful thinking that is typical of the way we use the word hope and the confident assurance that is biblical hope. So last week when David preached on verse 15, we saw that Paul was so thankful for the faith that was evidenced in the Christ followers in Ephesus. And that faith is why Paul is able to start talking about hope here. You see, biblical hope is the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation that is ours when we place our faith in Christ. When we receive that gift of faith, the mystery and benefits of which Paul just got done praising God for in verses 1 through 14, the Bible tells us that faith then is being able to be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot yet fully see. And that is how our hope is tied to faith, as well as to that word called, as we'll see in the next slide. So again, biblical hope is the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation, and the calling of God is his sovereign drawing of a sinner to that salvation that we know comes through faith. (laughs) Are you following me? 
So interestingly, and you might roll your eyes at me when you, when you hear this, but hear me out. This understanding of God's calling is directly related to the doctrine of total depravity. What? Like, are you kidding me? You're bringing that up again. No, but it really, really is. I promise. Listen, because of sin, every single part of us has been tainted, so much so that Paul's going to say in chapter 2, just a few verses coming, if you will, he's going to tell us that we are born dead in our transgressions and sins. And dead people can't do much on their own. Dead people can't do anything on their own. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we are completely incapable of reaching out to God or responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ on our own. So do you see how this all fits together? When we are called by God, it necessarily means that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and that he has sovereignly drawn us to himself through the power of the Holy Spirit in order to give us the gift of faith and the promise of eternal salvation in Christ. He is always the first mover. And the Bible tells us that all those God calls will come to him. We will respond. And when we do, all the benefits, all the blessings that we have in Christ that Paul went on and on about in the first 14 verses, they are ours guaranteed that is the hope to which we have been irresistibly called and it is certain all right so here it is again we want this slide this image to get imprinted onto your hearts and onto your minds paul is praying that we know in our minds in our hearts the hope to which god has called us so if God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, he will call us to himself out of darkness, off of that wide, dark path that leads to eternal destruction. And when we respond to his call, he gives us the gift of faith in Christ, and we are born again, justified, our sin washed away by that red dot of Jesus' blood, and then we're placed on that well-lit path in the kingdom of God. But salvation doesn't just stop there. Day by day, through the continual work of the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation, we come to know and love God more and more. And we are transformed, sanctified in ever-increasing ways throughout the course of our lives until one day, and that day is coming, for every one of us, we die and we stand before God. If we are in Christ, we will then be glorified with him forever and ever. Listen to this outstanding verse from Paul's letter to the church in Rome that captures this exactly. Those whom God predestined, and predestined is that word, right, that Paul used in the first several verses in chapter one in Ephesians. Those whom God predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I don't know Greek, 
But I learned that all of those verbs communicate that it is a done deal. Guaranteed, this is the absolutely certain hope to which God has called us. And Paul prays that we might know, that we know, that we know that kind of hope. Second, Paul prays that we might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Those three key, the, the three key words here are riches, inheritance, and saints. So we talked about the significance of our inheritance a few weeks ago. We learned that it's ours because we have a relationship with God. And Paul's words here in Ephesians, we are adopted in Christ by God before the foundation of the world. And second, this inheritance has nothing to do with anything we have done. The inheritance that awaits us is solely the result of Christ's sacrifice on the cross to make us holy and blameless before God. Third, we share it with our brothers and sisters who are also in Christ. We are all part of his body, his church. And y'all, it changes everything. We have that certain hope. We know where this is all heading. As a servant of Jesus Christ, this heavenly inheritance will be ours for all eternity. But here's the one thing about an inheritance. We don't get it all until we're gone from this earth, right? It's out there. It's certain. We know that it's coming. But we don't have it fully yet. We're absolutely enjoying some of it now. There's no doubt about it but it's just a foretaste. And we can't even begin to wrap our minds around how glorious it will be. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of what God has in store for those who love him. Riches upon lavish riches, endless immeasurable, mind-blowing. We long for the day when we will have the fullness of this glorious inheritance in God. And God longs for that day as well. Rest assured, it is coming. And as saints, we are all going to get to enjoy it together. Have you ever been present when someone got something that, like, thrilled and overjoyed them from the top of their head to the tips of their toes and your face hurt from smiling so much for them and with them. I mean, you, you're like happier than they are, right? Or have you ever been around a baby or a toddler who is just giggling and giggling and giggling and you just can't, you giggle with them. I mean, guys, that is nothing compared to the corporate joy and the corporate just celebration with one another of this inheritance that we are going to share together. Paul says that he wants us to know that we know that we know that it is ours in Christ. And the third thing Paul prays for the church is that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. But just saying it that way wasn't enough for Paul. I mean, he was like, hold up. You got to understand what kind of power I'm talking about. 
And so he goes on to describe it. He says, I pray that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So picture this, if you will, as a conversation between Paul and the church. And so Paul says, hey, y'all, I am praying that you might know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And someone like me puts her hand up. I always do that. I'm putting my hand up. I'm, uh, Paul, I don't really quite understand. What do you mean by that? What do you mean? And so Paul's like, he's like, well, that power, it's like the, it's like the power of God that was exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, the power that defeated sin, the power that conquered death, the power that brought resurrected life to the crucified body of Jesus, that same power is at work in us. That same power is at work for us. And the people were like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And Paul's like, okay, I'm not sure you're getting it, so the power of God that is worked toward us is like the power that seated Christ at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And that would have been especially meaningful to them because they would have known that there is no higher place than occupying a place at the right hand of a ruler. It meant that that person was in a position of supreme power with the privilege of exercising power on behalf of the one at whose right hand he sat. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he told all of his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. All authority, everywhere, over everything and everyone. So the power that made that happen that power is at work in us and toward us who believe. And Paul's listeners were like, oh, wow, I mean, that, that's really amazing. And Paul's like, okay, I'm still not sure you're fully grasping this. <laughs> Atomic bombs, tornadoes, tsunamis, those are like child's play. The power that's, work, that's at work toward us who believe is the same power that exalted Christ far and above even those things, above every principality, every authority, every other power, every dominion, the scope of the victory that God has secured by resurrecting Christ and seating him at his right hand is utterly comprehensive and complete. There is no galaxy, no molecule, no government, no cultural tide, no nation, no president, no angel, no demon. There is nothing in the entire universe over which Christ does not reign supreme. And the power that made all of that true in and through the resurrected Christ for all eternity, that power is at work in us. That power is at work toward us who believe. And Paul's listeners were like, whoa, that's a lot of power. But Paul had one last thing to say to make sure they really got it. 
That power, he said, it's like the power that took the beautiful and wonderful name of Jesus, just his name, and it placed it above every other name that could ever be named, now and forever. A a name so powerful that one day it is all that will have to be spoken, Jesus. And every single knee will bow, every single tongue on the globe will profess that he is Lord, he is Savior, he is Messiah. The power of that name, it's at work in us. And it's at work toward us who believe. Church, if God is for us, who, what can be against us? If that power is working on our behalf, who do we have to fear? What what do we have to fear? There is but one conclusion to draw from this. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. He said, whatever may be true of our experience, whatever may be true of the world and its darkness, whatever may be true of the seeds of decay and of illness and of death that are in our bodies, and howsoever great is the power of the last enemy, death, we can be certain and confident of this hope that nothing can prevent the carrying out of God's purpose with respect to us. There is no power that can withstand him. There is no might or influence that can match him. There is no possible antagonist that can equal him. The mightiest foes, the devil, death, and hell have already been vanquished. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are worthy of all praise. We cannot cease to give thanks to you for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation who opens the eyes of our hearts in ever-increasing measure. God, may your power that is at work in and toward us today, accomplish every one of your purposes. To the praise of your glorious grace, to us who are in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So if you are in Christ today, you can know the true and certain hope of the fullness and the completeness of your salvation, the completion that is coming and will be finalized. You can know that you have a glorious inheritance waiting for you, and you can know that there is immeasurable power work working in and for you. And so for our response time today, I want you to take time to consider where you may be feeling particularly vulnerable right now. I mean, perhaps you're, you're plagued with fear that your faith is too weak, 
You wonder if eternal life really will be yours. Ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart and to fill you with the hope that is yours because you can know that come what may, God will complete what he has started in you. He is faithful and he will do it. Or perhaps you're facing, you're feeling the heartache and the challenges that come with a, a tumultuous economy, an uncertain job situation, a failing body, a broken family. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you insight into the glorious riches of an inheritance that is waiting for you, one that will never perish, spoil, or fade, one that you're going to get to enjoy with all the saints in the presence of God for all eternity. Perhaps you're overwhelmed at the magnitude of the darkness that seems to be encroaching upon us more and more. Everywhere we turn, ask the Holy Spirit to help you know in your minds and know in your hearts what is the immeasurable power that is work in us and toward us. Ask him to give you the courage and the boldness to live for his glory because God reigns supreme over every detail of your life and of this world, now and forever.